you'd like to follow along with the sermon this morning, there's an outline provided in the bulletin for you. Well, I don't like blood. I really don't. It grosses me out. And blood makes me feel queasy. And I don't always pass out, but it happens sometimes. And we have medical professionals on both sides of our family, and they know this. And so they always like to share like their worst stories from the hospital with me. And I just have to cover my ears and just hide myself from these images of blood. But as Christians, we talk about blood a lot. It's kind of important to us. We sing about it. They just sang that we'd like to be washed in the blood. I mean, do you understand how weird that sounds? That just give me a whole bucket of blood and let me just wash in it. None of us would ever do that. It's disgusting. It's gross. It's weird. But our passage this morning in Exodus shows us where this blood fascination in our faith comes from. It shows us one of the touchstone events in the life of God's people that points us to the importance of blood, and that is the Passover. So if you would, open your Bibles this morning. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 11 and most of verse 12. Exodus 11, beginning in verse 1 through chapter 12, verse 42. Again, this week is a longer passage, but all of it is together. We hear that there are some descriptions of what is actually happening at the time, and Moses interjects some rules for future uh, people as well in here, but it is the story of the final plague, the story of God's Passover. So hear the word of the Lord. From Exodus chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, verse 42. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again, but a dog shall not growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for each household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the top of the door of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. And in this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, that is, without yeast. But on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month, at evening you shall eat unleavened bread, until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel, the top of the doorposts, and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. 
You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, They plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we cry out to you, and we give thanks for your word. Sometimes your word seems a little tedious with what kind of bread we're supposed to eat, on what day we're supposed to do certain things, and it doesn't seem to to matter as much to us as Christians living today, not being Israelites in the Old Testament time, but Lord, speak to us through your word. May your spirit go forth in the power of your word. Use me in spite of my own sinfulness that the truth would go out and change us to be your people. Amen. Well, our passage begins today with a word from God to Moses saying, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And so we expect there to be a similarity between this final plague and the previous plague. Plagues, But it becomes 
clear pretty quickly that this one is a little different. It's going to stand out from the others. See, last week we read about the first nine plagues, and we had lots of readers to help us, and they had a pattern that God showed his miraculous power using various manifestations. It brought an increasing level of discomfort to the Egyptians, and then God removed that manifestation of his power, usually at the request of Pharaoh. But Pharaoh, at the end of it, still refused to let the people go. And when we look at chapter 11, that's exactly what we see. We see another plague is coming, that God announces a plague. Moses tells Pharaoh what's going to happen, and Pharaoh is not going to listen. And it seems like it's going to be a repeat, except there are some significant differences. Aside from the obvious one that, hey, this one's going to work, there are two major differences with this plague. First, God himself is the plague. He is not sending something on Egypt to kill the firstborn. He himself is coming. That's the first big difference. The second one we see in chapter 12, and we see that Israel has to do something this time. That they are responsible for making a distinction between themselves and the Egyptians. And so this morning, I want us to take a closer look at these two big differences with this plague. The first being that God himself is the plague. We see this in chapter 11, verse 4. God says, at about midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. He later says in chapter 12, verse 12, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn. See, previously, God had mediated his judgment by sending it through various manifestations. He judged Israel with bloody water, with various kinds of creatures, with hail and with darkness, but those were warning shots. God himself would come and accomplish the final judgment. And God says he is coming to kill the firstborn, both sons and animals. Moses tells the people of Israel in chapter 12, verse 23, when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood and not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. So as we hear this passage, one of the things that probably jumps out to us is God is killing people. He is coming and personally killing people. He's called the destroyer, and I'm guessing that probably makes us in some way uncomfortable. We like other descriptions of God. Loving, merciful, as father, comforter, creator, destroyer, that's not exactly on the top of our list of descriptions of God. See, in our culture today, we like to keep God safe. We like him to be in this friendly box of ours. We emphasize sentimental, romantic, and compassionate elements of God's character. We make him into our butler, our genie, our shrink, our dad, maybe even our bro. But the Bible presents God as anything but safe. C.S. Lewis describes this unsafe nature of God well in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
After learning that the mysterious Aslan figure was not a man, but a lion, the child Lucy asks, is he quite safe? The native of Narnia responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. See, the lion Aslan was certainly unsafe to those who were evil, but that is what made him good. In a greater way, God is a holy God, and he is unsafe to all that is evil and sinful. His holiness is unsafe for sinners like us. So the imagery of God's holiness is often fire, a fire that consumes all that is impure and unholy. And so what we see in this passage is that unlike the other plagues that were different manifestations, when God himself would come in his holiness, in his holy wrath, God's own people were in danger of being consumed. The other plagues slightly disturbed Israel or didn't affect them at all. But when God himself would come, Israel would be in danger. That even though that he was their God, he was still God. See, they not only needed to be saved by God, they needed to be saved from God. And thankfully, in his grace, God told them how to be saved from his wrath. And that's the second big difference, that God's people had to do something. And it seems like kind of an odd thing if you really look at it. That God's people were asked to distinguish themselves from the Egyptians. Moses tells them when God sees the blood on their doors, he would pass over their homes. And that is ridiculous. It really is. Just a few chapters earlier, God was able to distinguish between his people and the Egyptians with no problem. None at all. He sent hail on the Egyptians... No hail for the Israelites. He sent flies on the Egyptians. And somehow flies like kept themselves to the Egyptians, not on God's people. He sent darkness on the Egyptians. And yet it was light for the Israelites. God could clearly distinguish between his people and the Egyptians. He didn't forget how to separate them. He wasn't like, oh man, could you guys do something so I can figure out where you are? I lost my place. You know, I need your help. So then why did they need the blood? We read in chapter 12, verse 13, it says, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So the blood acted as a sign. And signs signify something. So what did the blood signify? The blood signified that a death had already occurred in that home. See, one of the most striking verses in this entire passage is where it says there was not a house where someone was not dead. As long as you expand that someone to include lambs. The blood was a sign that the destroyer did not need to take a life here because a life had already been taken. That the Passover lamb was a substitute for the firstborn. 
It died in the firstborn's place so the firstborn could live. Now, that seems like a really weird thing to trust. And God gives really, really specific instructions. This is what makes our passage so long. He often does that. See, the lamb or the goat has to be a year old and without blemish. No blemishes on those goats. Okay? Has to be chosen on this day, but kept until this day when it will be killed at this time. And it must be eaten, cooked this way, while you are wearing these things. And it has to be eaten at this speed. The blood has to be smeared not only on the sides of the doorpost, but also on the top of the doorpost. And somehow, following those incredibly specific instructions would keep you safe from God's destroying wrath. You have to imagine that somebody out there was like, why don't we just board up the windows just to be safe? We could just move this piece of furniture in front of the door. How about that too? That would probably be good. Some people might have even like waited out the night tornado drill style under their tables, you know, like we had to do at school for tornado drills. See, we try to protect ourselves in various ways, and this doesn't sound like it's protecting anything. But that's because it was not a natural disaster that was coming to the people of Egypt. It was the supernatural God of the universe who was coming to destroy life. And there is no earthly measure that could stop God from coming to bring his wrath unless God himself graciously told us how to be safe from his wrath. And we find that that safety is found in the blood of the lamb. It is found in that substitute, that sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath, turning away his just anger at sin and making it possible for sinners to survive. So God's people had to do something in order to be safe from this plague, safe from God's wrath. But what they had to do was trust in God's word. And we finally see, after the beginning of Exodus just being about the stubborn people of Israel, we see in verse 28, And then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord commanded, so they did. They obeyed. They trusted God's word. They trusted that this odd ceremony of blood on their doorframe would keep the Almighty God out of their homes and away from their firstborn. Israel had to trust that God was going to come in his wrath. And they had to trust that God loved them enough that he was trying to keep them safe from that wrath by providing a substitute. You see, In the Passover sacrifice, we beautifully find the meeting place of God's holiness and his love. He is holy and must rightly judge sin, and yet he is loving enough to protect his people from that wrath. In the sacrifice of the lamb, he punishes sin and forgives sin. And such an amazing display of God's wrath and mercy was worth remembering. And our passage shows that this Passover meal was to be celebrated every year so it was not forgotten. And Moses anticipated generations of confused kids asking, What are we doing? What, are, what is this stuff? 
You can imagine young kids with skeptical looks as their parents painted the doorpost with lamb's blood. You can imagine whiny toddlers complaining that they're stuck eating flatbread instead of the fluffy good stuff. You can imagine groaning teenagers rolling their eyes about having to dress for a hiking trip to shove food in their mouths quickly. You can see that people thought this was weird, that this was an odd thing to do. But God provided this unusual celebration as a teaching tool, as a reminder of how God rescued his people from slavery. That this is what it took after 430 long years to finally bring the people out of slavery. And so every year they would remember what finally did it. Every year the Passover would paint a beautiful yet bloody picture of God's rich character. A picture that included both his holy wrath and his loving kindness. A picture of how seriously he took sin and yet the lengths he would go to forgive sinners. See, the Passover was a ceremony for Israel that pointed back to the redemption that God provided in the blood of the Lamb. But the Passover also pointed forward to a greater act of redemption. See, while the Passover remembered how God saved people from a physical slavery in Egypt, Israel was stuck in another kind of slavery. God's people were in spiritual slavery to sin. And as powerful as God's wrath was on Egypt, God's destroying holy wrath could not be satisfied by falling one night on Egypt thousands and thousands of years ago. No. Everyone, everywhere, would have to come face to face with God in his wrath for their sin. That we all deserve the wrath of God for our sin. That we have violated the holiness of God by disobeying him. Like Israel, we need not only to be saved by God, we need to be saved from God. And rather than try to spiritually barricade ourselves in our homes with our good works, stacking them up to keep God's wrath out, we need God to provide a new lamb, a new substitute, a new sacrifice to save us for nothing we build to block the door will keep God out. And thanks be to God for providing such a sacrifice in his son, Jesus Christ. God warns us that our sins deserve his wrath, but he also tells us you can be protected in the blood of the true lamb. The perfectly righteous and innocent Jesus is our Passover lamb. He died as our substitute. He died in our place. And God calls us to trust that the blood of Jesus will protect us from his wrath because Jesus took all of the wrath on himself. He did it so that we would be forgiven And when you start thinking about that, it sounds even weirder and more confusing than painting your doorframe with lamb's blood. So wait, let me get this right. This Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago was executed, and somehow that means the wrath of Almighty God isn't going to hurt me. Yeah, sure. You can understand that. 
What does that have to do with anything? Well, it has everything to do with it because that Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago was God's firstborn son. It was the real death of the firstborn who died in our place so that we might become God's sons and daughters. And so for generations like the sons and daughters of the Israelites, we are called to remember the great sacrifice, the great redemptive act of Jesus. Jesus showed us that his death was the fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice, how he is the greater lamb who came into the world to save our sins. And he instituted a new meal of remembrance, the Lord's Supper or Communion. God's provided a new teaching tool as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, how he died in our place, how he alone saves us from the wrath of God, how he makes it possible for us to receive forgiveness. And like the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper is a beautiful picture that points us to that great redemptive act of God. It points us back to the cross, to Jesus So when he secured our redemption from spiritual slavery, it is a beautiful picture of God's wrath and mercy meeting, of God's holiness and his love coming together. But the Lord's Supper doesn't just point us back. It also points us forward. It points us forward to a greater meal to what our New Testament reading from Revelation 19 describes as the wedding feast of the Lamb, that one day Jesus will return, and he will set up a far greater, and I'm guessing a way bigger table than this one. And his people will gather around to celebrate what he has done for us, that he accomplished what was impossible for us to accomplish by bringing us into a relationship with God that we had broken. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we look back to the cross, we celebrate it until he comes. Until we gather together with believers around the world throughout the ages and rejoice that we have all been saved by one lamb. He was big enough to go around for every house. Because when Jesus does come, we will have hope that we will not be destroyed by God's wrath. We have hope that God has graciously provided a lamb to protect us. And so let us trust in Jesus alone that he makes it possible for sinners like us to gather around the Lord's table in fellowship with the holy God. Let us praise our God for his wrath, that he is good because he punishes evil. And let us praise him for his grace, knowing that he has not wiped us all out in his wrath, but has provided safety for us. Let us remember not just what he has done, but let us remember that he has promised to come again. And for generations and generations, let us gather around this table, believing that Jesus saves us and proclaiming his name to all we know. Amen. Let us pray. God, we give thanks for Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. We give thanks for your wrath. But though it is frightening and terrifying, and it will consume some, we give thanks that in your grace you have provided a way to be saved. May we all find safety in the blood of the Lamb. May we all know that Jesus died in our place. And let us trust in him. 
Let us not trust in any barricades we can build. Let us not trust that somehow our goodness will save us. Let us trust in Jesus alone for safety. Lord, you are a holy and consuming fire, and we give thanks for your grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.